us on uh, Thanksgiving weekend and uh, very cool. And uh, I made it alive, so that was a good thing. Uh, but know that that can be a challenge. So again, grateful to, to be together uh, today. And thanks to Justin and Kayla for being our readers as we begin a journey through Ruth and as we begin Advent. I want to pause here for a moment and pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into this conversation. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we uh, come off of a week where we have been thinking about uh, gratitude and uh, all of the blessings that you have given us. And so we begin this morning in that place reflecting on your goodness, your grace, uh, your mercies, which you make new to us every morning. Then, God, as we uh, very quickly transition to, to thinking about Christmas, this Advent season, this season of waiting and longing and anticipating, may we remember that this is uh, about celebrating the birth of Jesus, but this is also about the moment that we are in, in the big story that you are telling, this waiting and longing for Jesus' return, for everything to be made right, to be made new again. And so God, help us, teach us what it looks like to live in that in-between place, to live in the tension between what you have already done and what you will accomplish at some point in the future. Remind us of, of what we truly find hope in. Take whatever it is that we bring in with us this morning, God, hold those things for us so that we can be fully present here. Would you speak to us and challenge us as we uh, hear from you and hear from your word today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. All right, so Ruth chapter 1, we are in Advent 2019, kind of crazy to, to believe, but it's December 1st already, and, uh, and just in the way the church calendar works this year, this is the beginning of the Advent season, and for the next four weeks as we prepare for Christmas, as we anticipate this moment in the calendar year, we're going to spend some time in this wonderful Old Testament story of Ruth. Now, you may be wondering at this point, who is Ruth? And what in the world does Ruth have to do with Jesus and Advent and Christmas and trees and all the other things that kind of go along with this season? Well, these are good questions. And so I wanted to spend a few moments getting started this morning with creating some context. Why are we spending time in the Old Testament book of Ruth during Advent and Christmas? So the first sort of big picture contextual reason is this. There are all sorts of fascinating connections between Ruth and Jesus. Last year, Advent 2018, we started our, our long journey through the book of Matthew, right? The life of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 1, there's this very long list of names, this genealogy uh, that explains all the people that have led to Jesus being born. And in that genealogy, there are these four very fascinating women. And one of those women is Ruth. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how there are, again, a lot of connections between the Jesus story and the events that are taking place, uh, again, in this sort of obscure Old Testament book. But I think there's also, uh, in addition to the connections to Jesus, there's two very, uh, I think, timely reasons for us to spend time in this book during this moment here in 2019. All right, so here's the first one. The first reason is this. The story of Ruth is a story of faithful people operating in obscurity during a chaotic time. This is the story of faithful people operating in obscurity during a chaotic 
time. Ruth 1, verse 1, tells us that this story happens during the time of Judges. Now, to put this in the context of the larger scope of Scripture, the book of Judges comes right before the book of Ruth in many of our Bibles. It covers a period of about 400 years in the history of Israel. And again, in, in the context of the Old Testament, the people of Israel are God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham. They spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt. God rescues them out of that slavery under the leadership of a man named Moses. Moses leads them out uh, into the desert. They wander around for a long time. Moses dies. A guy named Joshua takes over, and eventually Joshua is the one who leads this group of people, the Israelites, back to their land. They resettled their land under Joshua's leadership. But then Joshua dies, and Israel enters into, again, this long period of time where they don't have centralized leadership. And what God does is from time to time, he will raise up a leader called a judge. It's a, sometimes a man, sometimes a woman. But he will raise up someone in a moment of need to bring leadership to the people. But again, for the most part, there's not a lot of leadership within Israel. So the days of the judges, many, many thousands of years ago, the days of the judges were characterized by weak leadership, radical individualism, no absolute truth, rampant idol worship, and frequent wars. Totally different than today, right? The key phrase that's repeated throughout the book of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was right in their own eyes. The book of Judges is wild. Like, it's not suitable for work wild. If you read through it, it's like the Old Testament version of the Game of Thrones. Just violent and chaotic. It's actually kind of difficult to read in some parts of the story. This is the backdrop for the story of Ruth. All right, this quiet little story that creates a significant contrast, a juxtaposition to the chaos of this era of the judges. Now, the characters in this story may be familiar to us, may be famous to us now because they're in the Bible. We know their connections to Jesus. If you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard the story of Ruth at some point. But at the moment that these events are taking place, these are very obscure, under-the-radar characters. They certainly had no awareness of their bigger role in the story. These were not front-page headline news kinds of people. No one was tweeting about Ruth and Boaz. They're very much in the background, very much under the radar. And again, I think this is such an important truth for us in our cultural moment where fame has become the ultimate validator. Kind of a, a twist on the old philosophical question, right? If a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? Now it's, it's like if something happens and, and it doesn't go viral, does it even matter, right? We don't know what to make of obscurity and hiddenness. Perhaps you are aware, I'm guessing most of you are aware of the whole Kanye West phenomenon of the last couple of weeks. Kanye West has become a Christian. He's become a Christian artist. He has released an album called Jesus is King. 
And uh, just moment of confession, I'm actually a really big Kanye fan. I own like his first three or four albums, and I've always found him to be a very interesting character. But what's fascinating to me about this sort of recent phenomenon is, again, just how much energy has been devoted to his uh, quote-unquote conversion. And, And by the way, I'm in no position to judge whether or not that is an authentic thing or not. But what is interesting to me and what is, quite frankly, troubling to me is, again, the energy that's gone into this, especially from people in the church who are seeking validation. We get so much validation from fame. And yet when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, he uses small and obscure things. He talks about salt and yeast and mustard seeds. He talks about treasure buried, hidden in a field. And so in our fame-crazed cultural moment, I think it's important for us to sit with a story like Ruth that reminds us that God moves very powerfully, very significantly in the margins and in obscurity. It doesn't mean that he won't you know, use a famous person or a big event. Of course God can use anything. But the kingdom of heaven oftentimes is breaking through in ways that will never trend on social media. We do well to be reminded of this regularly. Faithful people operating in obscurity during a chaotic time. Second, the story of Ruth important for us because it's a story about displacement, migration, and the outsider. Ruth has a whole lot to teach us about how God views and values what we might call the other. And there's going to be obvious implications for how we view and value the other as well. In 2017, there were 258 million migrants worldwide. We live in an unprecedented historical moment of people moving around the globe. Now, while that may be true statistically, people movement is not new to our moment in time. Central to the biblical narrative is the migration of people. Abraham, the father of Israel, is called to move from Ur to this land called Canaan. His descendants move to Egypt. Later, they're rescued from slavery in Egypt, moved back to Canaan. Migration is a central part of the Advent story. Jesus' family moves from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, by the way, shows up in the Ruth story. But remember this, the, the, the emperor of Rome wants to do a census, wants to count all the people in his empire. And so he tells everyone to move back to their, uh, to their hometown. And so Jesus and Mary and Joseph have to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. After Jesus is born, they escape from Bethlehem to Egypt. Jesus' family are refugees for a period of time because King Herod wants to kill all the baby boys, wanting to wipe out this king of the Jews. Eventually, they migrate back to Nazareth, and that's where Jesus grows up. So the story of Scripture, all throughout the story of Scripture, we see people on the move. And in the midst of this movement, there is this continual call to care for people who are on the move, to care for the foreigner, the sojourner, the other. Up on the screen, there's just a a handful of places in Scripture where we're called to do this. Now, to bring this home, because I think, you know, we talk about 258 million people migrating around the world, and we start thinking about immigration policy, and it can get really 
uh, sort of detached from our everyday reality. But to bring this home, I think part of the reason why the book of Ruth is important for us right now is because here in Davis, I don't know if you guys have noticed this or been paying attention to this, but we have a pretty significant conversation going on in our city right now about how to love and take care of our homeless neighbors. And if you've been paying attention, if you've been reading the editorials in the paper, if you've been looking at some of the conversations taking place on the Nextdoor app, and I'll, I'll just repeat my pastoral word of advice there, don't spend too much time on Nextdoor. But spend a little bit of time, because you will get a sense of what people are talking about. This conversation has, quite frankly, revealed a lot of ugliness about how we as a community feel towards our attitudes towards the other. How we treat the other, though, how we treat people who are different than us reveals our view of God. It is a practical demonstration of our theology, of what we say we believe. And we have said, we've spent the last eight weeks, right, talking about our mission and vision as a church. We want to help people discover the good news of Jesus. And to do that, we want to be a church that builds bridges. Well, if we want to build bridges, if we want to connect people who are different from each other, we need to grow in our ability to see people the way that God sees them. And so the story of Ruth, I think, is a very good gift for us at this moment, this Advent here in 2019. All right, so that's the background. That's the backdrop for this conversation. Let's get into the story here for a few moments because there's a lot of amazing things going on here in chapter 1. It begins with this statement, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, a lot going on here just in verse 1. We already talked about the judges, but we also see there's famine in Israel. Food scarcity is one of the most common reasons for displacement and migration. People back then, people to this very day, are oftentimes on the move looking for food. Now, what's fascinating is that for this particular family, they leave Bethlehem, which means house of bread. All right, Bethlehem, a very fertile area. They leave the house of bread in search of food. And it takes them to this place called Moab. This is a true act of desperation because Moab was an old enemy of Israel. The, Moab, the Moabites were descendants of an incestuous relationship between a guy named Lot and his oldest daughter. Lot is the nephew of Abraham. So this goes all the way back to the origin story of the people of Israel. Lot has a relationship with his daughter. That produces a child. The descendants of that child are the Moabites. Moab settles to the east of, of uh, Israel on the other side of the Dead Sea. And they're probably people of Israel as in the story of Scripture for sending the prophet Balaam to curse the people of Israel as they're on their way from Egypt back to their land of Canaan. If you're not familiar with this story, the king of Moab hears about Israel coming back, not excited about this, so he sends this guy named Balaam to curse them. And, and Balaam tries to go, but along the way his donkey stops him. His donkey starts talking to him and tells him this is a bad idea. All right, all kinds of good pastor jokes come out of that story. Now, while they are enemies, they're not quite the sinister enemies of a group like the Philistines, 
However, they were definitely seen as a corruptive influence, and they were just like, you just didn't want to be with people from Moab. There was this general dislike of them, and so to go there in search of food is an act of desperation. This is where Elimelech takes his family, his wife Naomi and his two sons, Malon and Kilion, and it's in Moab that tragedy strikes this family. First, we're told that Elimelech dies, which again is a huge blow to the family for all kinds of reasons. But then his sons marry Moabite women, and then the sons also die. The key phrase here in the opening scene is Naomi was left without. Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, we we could go into uh, all kinds of deep weeds talking about, you know, the issues of patriarchal society here. But the reality is, is that in the ancient Near Eastern cultures that these events are taking place, these are deeply patriarchal societies. And so for a woman to be left without a husband and without her sons means that Naomi is in an extremely vulnerable position, probably the most vulnerable position in that society at that time. Women and foreigners had very few rights. They were socially, economically, and physically vulnerable. All that she has are these two daughters-in-law. One named Orpah, the other named Ruth. Both of them are Moabites. Things are not looking good for Naomi. But look at what happens next. Verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. One of the interesting aspects, literary aspects of the book of Ruth is that God is not a central character. He's rarely mentioned by the narrator and is referenced a few times by some of the characters. But for the most part, God is in the background of this story. This highlights this theme of obscurity and small things. Here in verse 6, this is the first of a series of coincidental, providential moments that underscore for us that even though God is in the background, he's very much at work in the events of these stories. And so here, just at Naomi's lowest, most vulnerable moment, she gets word. There's food. At home. And so she begins to prepare to head back there with her two daughters-in-law. Now what we see through the rest of chapter 1 is these three women processing their loss. We see three different responses, three different ways to respond to suffering and loss. Verse 8, they are on now the move, desperately trying to survive, and Naomi pauses them for a moment and says, hey, wait a minute. You guys don't have to do this. You don't have to go with me. Go back, she says, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, and hold on to that word for a moment. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now here in Naomi's offer, we're introduced to the central theme of the book of Ruth, this word kindness. It's translated from the Hebrew word hesed. 
And it can be translated a whole bunch of different ways. It can be translated as kindness, mercy, loving kindness, covenant-keeping love, loyal love. It's used 248 times in Scripture. Almost every single one of those times, it's used to reference God and His character. There's this very uh, uh, famous, often used formulation for God's character throughout the Old Testament. One example of it is Exodus 34, where we read, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in hesed and faithfulness. This formulation occurs, uh, again, several times throughout the Old Testament, every time it uses this word hesed. Very central to who God is. Now in Ruth, in in most of our English Bibles, it will be translated as kindness, and that's accurate, but our English word kindness is kind of flimsy compared to this Hebrew word hesed. For us, kindness is, is, you know, oh, just be like a nice person. Don't rock the boat or, or ruffle any feathers. But this Hebrew word, much, much stronger than that. We're translating it, this is the title of our series, Faithful Enduring Love. Hesed is the kind of love that sticks around through thick and thin, sickness and health, till death do us part. This is generous, sacrificial love. This is laying your life down for the good of another. So Naomi gives them an out, and then she keeps pressing the issue to Orpah and Ruth. Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And so they grieve for a moment, and then we see Orpah make the decision to go home. And so here we have the first response to loss. Orpah chooses to cling to the familiar. Now, one of the things I want to be really clear about as we move through each of these three responses, the the author of the story is very non-judgmental towards each of these characters. And, you know, in the same way, I want us to, to understand that There isn't like a a right option or a wrong option here. There's nothing sinful about Orpah's decision to go back. She makes the entirely reasonable decision to return home, to go where she has people, where she has resources, a network to plug into, where the customs are familiar, the language is familiar, the food and the religion are familiar. Ruth is going to become the hero of the story as we move through the next couple of chapters, but that does not mean that Orpah is the villain. I want us to be very clear on this. Sometimes the reasonable choice is the best choice. We see Orpah clinging to the familiar, and then we see Ruth clinging to Naomi. Naomi gives Ruth yet another out in verse 15. Ruth doesn't take it. And then we get this incredible response. Some of the most famous words in the entire Ruth story. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord 
deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And so Naomi realizes that Ruth was determined to go with her, and she stops urging her. This is Hesed in action. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Your future, Ruth says, is going to be my future. Ruth makes the risky, sacrificial, life-changing decision to stay with her mother-in-law. Now, one of the gifts of a season of suffering and loss, it, it, when we move through it to the other side, is that there is a freedom to do something different. It's become obvious that the old ways don't work anymore, and so there's this invitation to step into the unknown, to step into something new. If you have ever spent time with someone who has suffered tremendously and moved all the way through that process, they have an incredible freedom. But there's a great risk in this. Ruth is giving up everything that she knows, everything that she's ever drawn her identity from to go somewhere unfamiliar. And the truth is, it, it could even get worse for her. She will now be the foreigner. Naomi's been the Israelite in Moab. Ruth is going to become the Moabite in Israel. But she goes. She goes with Naomi willingly, sacrificially, we might say chesedly. Professing this faithful, enduring love and then backing it up with risky action. Now, for some of us, this might seem a little too good, a little too idealistic. And so in between these two widows is the third widow, Naomi. Naomi, who is deeply disappointed with God. Verse 13, she says, the Lord's hand has turned against me. Later on in chapter 1, she'll say, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now again, we want to be non-judgmental to each of these characters, but Naomi does end up in a place where many of us can go in the midst of loss, which is to conclude that if we are suffering, God must be mad at us. This is a misguided application of the truth of God's sovereignty. If you're not familiar with that terminology, God's sovereignty, this refers to the idea that God is ruling over all aspects of the universe. Phil Tuttle, who's, who's teaching on Ruth, is just fantastic. He's president of Walk Through the Bible, says this. Suffering can mean one of three things. It could be a time of discipline. It could be a time of testing. Or it could be that we are experiencing messed up things in our messed up world. We don't know. But then here's the key idea. It is an unhealthy leap of logic to assume that because we are suffering, God is disappointed with us. It is an unhealthy leap of logic to assume that because we are suffering, God is disappointed with us. But this is where Naomi finds herself. By the end of the chapter, they've returned to Bethlehem. Naomi finally home. And look at how she explains her situation to her old friends and neighbors. Don't call me Naomi, she tells them. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. 
The Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Over the course of her story, migration, loss, famine, return, Naomi's moved from full to empty, pleasant to bitter, trusting God to doubting God. And again, while she may have fallen into a theological fallacy, she's never condemned by the author or by God. The story is simply told. There's no editorial commentary here. Naomi is grieving. And she's in the middle of a grieving process, and she has every right to grieve. Dr. Earl Grohlman writes, Grief is not a disorder, a disease, or a sign of weakness. It is an emotional, physical, and spiritual necessity. It is the price you pay for love. The only cure for grief is to grieve. And there are a couple of important truths here for us. One is this. When you are with someone who is grieving, let them grieve. That is not the time to come dropping in with theological statements and spiritual cliches. And then the other side of this truth is if you are the one grieving, it is okay to express that. There is literally a book in the Bible called Lamentations. And there are many psalms, many other passages of Scripture expressing grief, loss, frustration, disappointment, injustice, anger. It's okay to grieve. So we see these three widows, three different responses to loss. Orpah clings to the familiar. Ruth takes a risk and steps into the unknown. Naomi expresses her disappointment with God. Three responses, none of which are specifically, specifically condemned or praised by the storyteller. By the way, the storyteller, quite brilliant. M many scholars uh, agree, whether they are Jesus followers or not, that Ruth is one of the most uh, fantastic pieces of literature to come out of the ancient Near Eastern cultures. At the very end of the chapter comes this tease, this mini cliffhanger. If you are Netflixing Ruth, each chapter ends with that moment of like, oop, got to see what comes next. Living in Beth 22, Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest was beginning. Food is coming. Harvest is just beginning. Hope is right around the corner for Ruth and Naomi. Now, as we reflect on part one of this story, we, we need to ask the question, all right, that's great. What does any of this, though, have to do with Advent? As we see these three widows processing loss, grief, the instability and uncertainty of their futures, we need to acknowledge that we come into a season like this in very, a very similar place. The holidays always seem to bring with it a sense of bitter sweetness. We miss people that we're far away from. We remember those that we've lost. And this particular Advent may represent a, a, a more specific struggle for you. Maybe you've been looking for a job and it hasn't come through yet. Maybe you've been hitting a wall and parenting your kids. Maybe your finances are not looking so good or school's been really tough 
this quarter, or you've invested a lot in a relationship and it hasn't worked out. Or maybe you, you just read the news and you look at the madness of our world and you wonder who can celebrate during a time like this. Now, traditionally, the first theme of Advent, there's sort of four weeks, four themes that go with each week. The first theme of Advent is the theme of hope. And I want to be really clear about this. We begin with hope, not in spite of whatever we bring into this season with us, not to sort of stuff that all down and pretend like it's not there. We begin in hope because of the bittersweetness of this season. It's because the world is always mad that we begin each Advent season with hope. Sarah Bessie, who's just a wonderful writer, says it this way. We enter into Advent precisely because we are paying attention. It's because everything hurts that we prepare for Advent. It's because we've stood in hospital rooms and grave sites, empty churches and quiet bedrooms, that we resolutely lay out these candles and matches. We don't get to have hope without grief. She goes on to say, hope dares to admit that not everything is as it should be. And so if we want to be hopeful, first we have to grieve. First, we have to see that something is broken and there's a reason for why we need hope to begin with. Advent matters because it's our way of keeping our eyes and our hearts and our arms all wide open. Even in the midst of our grief and our longing. And so over the next three weeks, as we continue to explore what happens to Ruth and Naomi, all the twists and turns of, of their story, we'll again see all the connections to Christmas and to Jesus. But for now, I want us to sit here for just a few moments with these obscure characters who have no idea how all of this is going to turn out for them. All they know is it doesn't look good. Widows and foreigners on the move with no safety net, desperately looking for food, searching for hope. And if we're being honest, this is the journey that we are all on. And so we asked the question this morning, which of these characters do you resonate with? Where do you find yourself in this story? Are you disappointed with God like Naomi? It's okay to express that. And if you need to grieve, if this Advent is an invitation to grieve, then grieve. Do you find yourself in Orpah trying to cling to the familiar? By the way, if you need to cling, cling. That's one of the beauties of the Advent season. These things we come back to year after year, traditions and rituals, something for us to hold on to. Do you need to risk and hope like Ruth? Now, I, I, you know, I hesitate to do these sorts of things. I think there's application here for all of us. But I do want to speak for just a moment. A particular word of challenge to our students, especially, uh, I think, grad students. Uh, this is something that Amy and I went through. When we moved to Boston for her to uh, um, do a grad program, there's a, 
sort of migration that happens, right? You have moved from somewhere where you have roots and familiarity to start a new chapter in your life. And that, that migration can bring up stuff. There's a moment there to grieve what you've left behind. But there's also, I think, a Ruth-like invitation there as well to make this place your home, your people. Amy and I ended up staying in Boston an extra four or five years. I don't remember how long it was after that before we eventually came back to California. And that period of time continues to be uh, so formative in our life, and there's relationships from that era that continue uh, to bless us in all kinds of different ways. Is there a Ruth-like invitation for you in this moment? But wherever you are at, wherever you find yourself as we enter this Advent season, let's begin by naming honestly where we are. Because when we name that, then we have the ability to step into the hope of this season, to be able to hold the tension between grief and hope, the madness of the world, and the good news of Jesus. We're going to close our time together this morning the way that we always do. This is the highlight of our gatherings when we come around this table and we celebrate this meal called communion. And communion is a way for us week in and week out to remember the hope that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. Christmas, of course, is about remembering the birth, but every Sunday we remember this whole story. We remember our relational distance, the the separation that our sin has caused between us and God. And, And we remember what God has done on our behalf, something that we could never do for ourselves. And he sends his son Jesus to die in our place, and then to come back from the dead three days later, overcoming that separation through his resurrection. The hope that we have is in the resurrected Jesus who we remember every time we eat this meal together. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So I'm going to pray here in just a moment, and then the band is going to lead us through uh, some closing songs, and then we'll end our time together lighting the first candle, the candle that represents hope. But as we step into this moment, name where you are. What do you bring in with you to this Advent season? Which of these characters do you resonate with? Spend some time reflecting on that, and then come and participate in this meal with us together where we remember the hope that we have because of the resurrected Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come into this season in so many different places. Each one of us has a story of uh, tragedy and loss, story of hope, ways that you have been at work in each of our lives. And so we bring all of that to you this morning. We don't know how the story ends for each of us, but we know that you are at work, oftentimes in these hidden and unseen ways. Help us to trust that. 
And two, again, God, hold in tension the bittersweetness, the grief, the madness of our world with the truth and the hope that we have in the resurrected Jesus. Father, if there are those here this morning who have uh, never responded to that good news, I would, uh, I would just pray, God, that you would move in their hearts, draw them closer to you. For all of us, help us to again name where we are, to enter into the Advent season open-handedly, expectant that you will do something uh, with that, God, that you will reveal yourself to us in some new and fresh way. Restore to us the hope that we have because of what you have done for us in and through Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.